Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos. I am J. Dylan Proctor. This is a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. Today, we're really excited. We have a guest with us, Chris from the Gen Y Conservative. And Chris, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell people where they can find you at. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. I'm glad that I could be here today. I was really looking forward to this. We've been working on it for quite a while, getting in touch with each other. Uh, I run a podcast called The Generation Y Conservative. Uh, I've been running something akin to it since the early 2000s with a blog uh, back then, and it's really translated well over into the audio and visual component for a podcast. So uh, right now where you can find me is on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, but just by searching for The Generation Y Conservative. I like to interact with people on Twitter. It's at Gen Y Conservative without the E on the end. Um, and right now I am being put on to KLRN internet radio on Sundays from three to nice. 6 PM with the, uh, the podcast. And they have also graciously put me on to iTunes under their brand as well. So, uh, both the audio and visual are out there for people to follow along with. Fantastic. Before we go too far, um, why don't you explain what is the generation? Why? A lot of people, they, they hear things <laughs> like millennial, gen X, yes. gen Z. What is Gen Y? So Gen Y is, uh, it's definitely in the millennial generation. Uh, obviously, the millennials get a pretty bad rap for our age group as far as yep. being in self-entitled brats and uh, expecting everything handed to us and also whining about everything. We're also the generation of helicopter parents, uh, them being in control of absolutely everything that we're doing. The generation of participation trophies and just getting something for nothing. I mean, even my kids right now, they play sports and they don't even keep score and it drives us insane. Um, So all that being said, uh, it's also also labeled as after the generation X, which is preceded us, is uh, the next generation would be Y. So when people refer to millennials, I kind of take a step back and and jokingly say that uh, don't label me with the millennials, label me as generation Y. Um, One thing thing that's pretty interesting... Yeah. One thing that's pretty interesting about our generation, though, that always just uh, astounds me is the fact that within my age group, if you're in your mid 30s, I would say uh, we're the generation that were the analog and digital generation. Uh, All the people before us had to transition and had a little bit of a rougher time going through the digital age and the Internet and everything, whereas the people after us were born into it and really took hold of it. And I guess you could say it was the boomers that created all the digital age for us, too. So everyone was involved. But we were that transition point of going from AOL Messenger with the bing, bing, you know, and the, <laughs> the dial-up sound and everything over yep. to everything that we have now, going from beepers to cell phones. So I think our generation has been really at the forefront of a pretty incredible time. Oh, I think you're right. And we're, we're going to talk about... Uh the Fresno professor here in a minute, but while we're having this conversation, it's really interesting. You know, I remember, easily remember being in high school, going even through college without a smartphone. And, you know, even remembering before Facebook was so deeply integrated in everything, before it was involved in businesses and whatnot. But when I look at the world around us, and of course I'm I'm a pastor being a minister, I see the biggest change in how society has worked culturally as the mark really of the, the smartphones. And the, yes. the having social media in your hands as someone who has pastored again, all of my adult life, I've been pastoring somehow this worked out in a weird way. Never thought I'd become a pastor, 
But I can remember before everyone had smartphones and how people interacted and then after that infected, how quickly that changed the culture. And it's just, it's a phenomenal thing to see. Yeah. I, I, I myself even fall victim to it and uh, got in trouble tonight and by my own doing, spending more time looking at the the smartphone for for work purposes instead of paying attention to uh, the conversation at the dinner table. So I should have mm. thrown it into a bowl or something like that. But yeah, we all fall victim to uh, what's going on because, you know, talking about that transition between the two generate between the the two trends of analog to digital. Yeah. Uh, the smartphone is just this amazing piece of equipment that brought the computer, the camera, the telephone, and all these other technologies that you can find, video camera and everything, into something that fits in your pocket. And, and of course, you're glued to it now. Your games and everything are on there. So uh, it's destructive to our, our culture right now. But at the same time, we're receiving information faster than we ever have before. And it's kept us uh, at the forefront of what's going on in the news as well. So with what's going on in the news, sometimes that's a bad thing because the news isn't always trustworthy anymore on either side, but at least the information is there for people to be able to access um, the statistics and research to back up those claims immediately. Yeah. Well, you know, there really is some interesting details about how quickly technology has advanced and what this has done for us culturally. I don't know if you've noticed this, but one of the things that strikes me odd about the amount of information we have available to us is the fact that, historically speaking, technology is developed at a rate where a generation really learns how to integrate it in the world around them in a productive way. And it's usually passed down from one parent generation to a child generation, and they can kind of learn with it and mm -hmm. develop it a little bit better. But now we're at this weird place where technology has exploded so much, a lot of the younger people, and even people younger than us, can do things with computers just phenomenally, and they pick it up so quick. And you haven't had that parent-to-child handing down of technology at a weight rate that we can really understand how to integrate it into society without dealing with all the negative ramifications so abruptly, where now it's just been pitched out there, and again, all this crazy stuff happens. Again, there's so much news available to people at kind of oversaturates the senses and people have fragmented off into echo chambers and things like that. And it's just crazy. It's a lot yeah. of negative sides of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with that. All right. Well, moving on to the, a serious conversation about checks and balances in the university. An interesting thing happened in our news here in America and the West. So ex first lady, Barbara Bush, she had passed away and there was a professor at Fresno, the university in California, who had come out and she had this tweet that Barbara Bush was an amazing racist, and she had sort of celebrated Barbara Bush's death. And not only did she make this statement, but then she goes on to sort of brag and celebrate the fact that she can't be fired. She says, you know, I'm a tenured professor. And even if you read through some of her other tweets, she likes to make the argument by authority, saying, you know, I'm a, pre I'm a professor. I do more than just read headlines. Really has this mentality that I'm smug, I'm beyond reproach. There aren't really any checks and balances in our culture for people who who go out on a limb, who are now teaching young people, they're able to indoctrinate people really in a very negative way, but there's not really a good system of checks and balances to hold these people accountable. And Chris, I just wanted to throw this out to you and see what do you think the best response to something like this is? 
Yeah, well, that's a great question to start off with, because really you're coming at this from a couple different angles in regards to what you were talking about there, which is the first family and the way they actually were versus the way that she's portraying them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Our current educational systems in both the uh, high school and lower level, as well as our university level and where that's heading right now. And then you also have this woman and what's going on with her. Um which kind of leads me into another topic that is uh, goes along with this as well that I feel is very important right now, which is we live in a culture of enragement, I guess you could yeah. say. Uh, just when something happens, we have a tendency to be offended on one side or enraged on the other. And I think that the right falls into the enraged category and the left is always offended by something, right? Um, in this case, I truly feel like this woman has an attention problem that she's yearning for this attention and doesn't care whether it's negative or positive towards her. And some people like her actually want that in uh, the uh, anger flowing from people like us towards her so that she can use that symbolically to encapsulate what the right is all about. Right. Um, So I think it's, it's um, behooves us to approach us in a very calm way and, not get mad at her. Uh, I don't. I don't really see a reason to be mad at her at her for what she was saying. She does have freedom of speech to say what she says. I, I think she's factually wrong on what she's saying. It disturbs me a little bit on on the university situation that she's using her tenure as a crutch in the situation. Um, but I think she's she just wants to rile us up, and I, I don't want to personally give her that. You know. Um, but yeah, the, I think you and I uh, had, were touching upon before that the. The situation with tenure and her using that is is troublesome in the universities, right? Oh, yeah, certainly. Because, again, it's like the concept of checks and balances are just gone. People, yeah. they're able to use something like tenure as a crutch to do whatever they want to. And that they're, they're, they're separated from the laws of cause and effect that the rest of us have to deal with in the world. You do something, there's an effect you have to deal with. In her situation, again, I think you're largely right that a lot of times what people do is they have a straw man out there and they know that if they they play the straw man long enough, maybe that there be a few people take the bait and sort of give life to the straw man. Um, But, yeah, the the problem I really see is that erosion of checks and balances. Yeah, her ultimate goal in this case, if she if she truly intends for us to be mad at her for this is that she can ultimately fall back on being a victim in oh, the yeah. case of the enragement of the engagement from the right. Um, now, what I find interesting is that uh, can she should she be fired for what she said is on one hand, right? Does she have freedom of speech to say what she says without repercussions from the university? Yes, but what she's actually doing beyond what she's saying about Barbara Bush being a racist and attacking the first families uh, in this case is she's using the university's tenure as a crutch and basically throwing it in the face of not only people on the right or people that oppose her views, but also into the face of the university saying, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't matter what I do or what I say, this university I have tenure at can't touch me even though they're in, tar- in charge of me. Uh, this is going to bring a lot of negative attention to the university and uh, the donor situation as well as attendance and everything, which I think has more merit to fire her than the actual words that she said about Barbara Bush. I do too. And not only that, 
she had put in a tweet, a phone number, and yes. it was to a helpline based out of Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. And it wasn't even one that was at the university. I don't know exactly what caused her to obtain this number. But anyway, she puts that on there <laughs> and people are spamming that. Yes. And that's that's much more of a, a call for, you know, some serious repercussion from a professional standpoint, just running the, the university as a business, I think, than necessarily the free speech. But it does put us in a place where how do we we balance how do we just have checks and balances in this? And I think I think you, you bring up some good points about how just letting sort of the, the market work a little bit here when people pull yeah. back yeah. in attendance. Well one thing people, one Go thing ahead. I do want to mention, though, uh, before you leave the subject completely, is the the phone number that she provided was a mental health crisis line. So the phone lines were jammed and uh, inundated with phone calls from people that thought they were calling her yeah. and jamming up the phone lines for people that actually did have mental health emergency problems. Uh, they were caught in that congestion as well. So she uh, literally put lives at risk. Yeah. by putting that phone number up there and, and doing that. Um, as far as checks and balances are concerned, you're you're really hitting into my area. I was elected twice to the school board in our local area and have a deep connection with uh, public education at least, and which is why we ended up homeschooling <laughs> because things are just that bad right now. But in regards to the universities, uh, one interesting thing, and I've been saying this for the past couple of years now, We've had our economic bubbles. We've had our housing bubbles. I think that the the biggest bubble that's going to burst next is the university education bubble because the prices keep on skyrocketing to pay for these uh, these professors and faculty, and they are enlarging these campuses to attract more people. The stadiums are going up and getting even bigger. And in the meantime, the costs are getting so outrageous for families that can't afford it anymore that they're turning to alternatives like online universities, mm -hmm. which don't require you to pay for a dorm room or cafeteria food or anything else on campus. And as more people take advantage of that, they're going to be going away from the universities. And those universities are going to face serious financial uh, problems in the future. And I think that is the next bubble that's going to collapse. So people like this that are facing tenure, it's going to get to a point where tenure isn't going to protect you too much longer, I think. Yeah. And I think not just are they feeling the pressure from people moving online. I know I did my undergraduate in a sort of flesh and blood, go to the classroom setting. And then I did mm -hmm. all of my graduate work online. I loved the online setting. It was way better. And I actually knew my professors better doing it online, which was an unexpected side effect. Yeah. However, I think another problem is, is that so many of these places are teaching material that is either unreliable, it's not actually connected to true liberal arts, which has been sort of this mentality in the West that the person as an individual has personal agency. They can find liberty through educating themselves, through the process of enlightenment in the mind is how they find liberty. So many of these universities have moved away from that and have been teaching material which is unfortunately largely unreliable and yet even young people are able to find information online. They're able to watch content that's actually providing them something reliable. And I think that's a big threat that they're experiencing too. I know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As a, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going <laughs> to say as a clear example, where I went to school, the president has been a little bit worried and upset that a lot of the people who have now gone off into 
to the workforce, particularly people who are now pastors, they're choosing to do continuing education through online avenues instead of through the continuing education affiliated with them. And you see this move where people are, are looking for a little bit better product than what they were sort of being told that they needed to go and buy. And in that case, uh, what you have to, the workforce itself, whether you're in education or not, has to evolve as quickly as the technology is evolving. So if, if a university president is so upset that people are seeking education online elsewhere, they should have been at the forefront of providing that online education themselves in the first place where their students could go immediately at a much uh, more affordable price than yep. going outside if you were at an actual graduate of that, that college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for certainly, for sure. Um, Anthony, you had something you wanted to add before we get too far away. Well, um, I would want to add two things, I think. The first one is that, um, you know, for a lot of people, and uh, <laughs> it's just an interesting question, why do people even have tenure? You know, and I, I can understand that maybe maybe sometimes it can be a good thing. But, I mean, my understanding is that the idea is you can't be fired. Why yeah. why on yeah. earth would an employer ever agree to, to give that to an employee, you know? Mm -hmm. So that would be my first thing, which you guys can talk about that. And then um, y'all go yeah. ahead. I just find it really interesting that this seems to be more centered around education as a whole anyway, and not, not only here in the United States. There are actual uh, places in, I want to say France is is one of them. I, <laughs> I want to say that they're called rubber rooms or, or something like that, where teachers that are can't be fired uh, from the system because they're already in it are sent to different levels of a building where they sit all day and read the paper and have coffee and have nothing to do with education but are still on the bankroll for it because they can't be fired. And I know that this also happens up in New York City and everything too. So it's happening everywhere and it's like this protective bubble around education, um, which is one of the scariest things because I, I, unions served a purpose in the past with things like minors and their health and, and going down and getting black lung and everything. Or I still believe that they serve a purpose for people that are at literally risking their lives uh, in the police force or firefighters or anything like that, that you need some sort of protection behind that. I guess some people would argue with the mass shootings lately that teachers do put themselves at risk. In some areas, they probably do. But the purpose of unions and that that level of protection anymore really actually ends up stifling the best teachers in the system mm -hmm. because you can only move according to the steps and ladder system of yeah. pay raises and education and you're hindered to that and you're not getting paid based on your merit whereas you're stuck in the same system with the educators of the lowest quality that are a harm to our students um, and their their futures and they're protected as well. And you oh, can't certainly. get rid of them. And again, just going back a few steps to the tenure thing, it reminds sure. me a lot about how when the last election came, I know one of the big motivators for people was the Supreme Court because they yes. realized these people, when they get on there, they're there. And the same thing yes. with tenure. There's a lot of weight when you put somebody in that shoe where they've got that much power and the threshold of getting them out is so, so far away. It, it's something which really does put a lot of gravity on the situation. But back to what you were saying about the educators now and how there's really a detachment from the merit 
that people have as an individual and how much reward they get as a teacher. I know I have in my own family people who are teachers. They've been public school teachers for a long time. My mother Mm -hmm. has been a public school teacher since before I was born. But not only her, but other people I know, a lot of them have seen the education system evolve so much now where there's such a huge detachment from what even the teachers who are experienced have spent a lifetime doing this. They know the sort of appropriate structure for things, but they see a lot of things coming down from from detached departments. Again, this is where federalism was supposed to keep things small, not supposed to have an overarching macro set of solutions to things, but where just the the proximity to, to actual education itself versus the policies of education have gotten so distant. The policies are so far away from the classroom. You have all these bizarre things. I wasn't familiar with the rubber rooms in France, but I'm mm-hmm. not surprised at all with that to see no, something no. like that going on in our world. Where uh, To feed off of your point there uh, and further it, um, one thing you have to understand is I don't attack educators. Uh, the, the people that are uh, graduating and going into the system right now are being not literally born into the situation, but they, they are coming into a situation where they're accustomed to it immediately and can easily transition into that new environment with common core state standardized mm-hmm. testing and all these federal bure- bureaucracy rules coming down and policies. Uh, but if you actually talk to some of the teachers that you would have had in high school or anyone else that went through that transition, like you said, with some of your family members, these people used to stay up till nine o'clock at night grading tests and everything. And now they're retiring because they're up till midnight and they don't have any creative control over their environment anymore because they're being, they're more of a Google search result spitting out a result uh, that the computer's telling them to do rather than being able to take a subject, make it their own, and teach creatively, which I think is really sad in our culture. Oh, it's extremely sad. I know when Common Core was first being implemented, they didn't have textbooks that were necessarily up to the standards. So they had told them, yep. you know, you can't use the old textbooks. And so many of the teachers were, that, like you said, exactly, you hit the nail on the head, staying up till midnight trying to find stuff that they can comply or material they can use that can comply with what they're now basically being forced to use, even though they, they know there's a better system for this. They've, they've had experience. They actually, many of them actually had books still physically there in the school, yes. but they were no longer allowed to use them. These new standards right. really yeah. choked that down. It's just Yeah, terrible. and not only that, uh, you also have a situation where if you look at the school board level, obviously, uh, talk about a thankless job. You don't get paid for that in most school districts. Um, but if you actually are able to sit in on your local school district board meetings, what you'll find is 20 years ago, 15 years ago, the school board was able to manipulate the curriculum into what fit best for their community. And when I say manipulate, I don't use that in a, in a bad way. I mean that this is what the community should be focusing on. Either their students are behind and lagging or they're ahead and they need to um, switch up that system to best fit those students' needs. Now you go into a board meeting and instead of having the school board be able to uh, vote according to what's best for their school district, they're basically being told at a federal and state level, this is what's happening. Uh, just so you know, there's no yes or no vote. The, the most that you get to do anymore is vote on the budget. That's it. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things which really bothers me because it really seems like a lot of the actual educators themselves are extremely alienated from the people who are formulating educational policy. And that, that always really bothers me. Um, because again, there's like the basic 
physics of cause and effect seem to be detached there. People, they, they design some sort of policy, they implement it. No, no decisions to, to look at this in the future, say, well, let's have the evidence, see if this is work. Is this creating a headache? Are we actually seeing the results we wanted? Just, again, no, no checks and balances. If, if you don't mind me pointing out real quick, this is because uh, I love talking about education. I think it's uh, it's our future. I mean, that's yeah. that's how important it is with our, our generations coming up. Uh, the problem with having these common core standards and state standardization tan- standards is that we are trying to establish on a national level a bar for education. What what are our kids supposed to meet? Right. The problem with that is when you set a bar according to averages you're you're taking the lowest common denominators into that equation, right? Yeah. So that level, that average has to come way down mm-hmm. instead of being something that we artificially even prop up and try to make our students achieve higher. We're allowing them to achieve lower and saying, okay, if they hit the bar, that's, that's good enough. I mean, if you look back at a third grader's uh, uh, national type test back in the early 1900s, most adults can't answer those questions today. Yep. And we yet we continue to fall back on statistically where we stand in regards to other countries in the world. Um, so as we lower that bar, not only do we leave those students in the dust that aren't able to keep up, but then you also have kids in the back that are excelling, that yep. are gifted students that are bored in the classroom. And you are just focusing on that middle group and you're not able to create, uh, teach creatively. In that oh, case, and so. certainly, certainly. And it preys on the virtue of compassion for the, the lowest performing students. And again, yep. picking a single virtue at the expense of other virtues is always disastrous. I mean, this is where a lot of the great evils of history come from. People have one virtue, they like it, they like orderliness or something. They don't care much for empathy or charity. In the yep. educational setting, they sell this as, oh, we're being nice to to these lowest performing students. We're being compassionate. We're going to center things around them. But this is really unfortunate. It's unfortunate for really everyone involved, unless you're somebody who is like perfect middle tier who matches that standard naturally. But for the students who excel above that, again, they're not getting the personalized education that they need. Again, they... I know even when I was in, in middle school and late in elementary school, they had different reading groups and things set up based on how people were performing. And that was great because those who are excelling well, they need that tailored treatment. And those who are the lower performers too, they really need that individualized care. They don't actually need to treat, yes. push towards the common abstraction of the group. They need something which can be practical for them. And working with them on the individual level is so much more compassionate to them than having this really artificial abstraction of, of children as a whole and saying everybody's going to meet this baseline. It's, it's unfair to the people that they claim this is being compassionate to is what it really is. Yeah. And maybe I'll throw you a little bait here uh, myself on the podcast lately. One of the things I've been talking about is that pinpoint of where our educational standards started to decline in relation to the rest of the world. I kind of feel myself and I've been saying this a lot lately is around the time when we started taking God out of schools. And to go along with that, one of the things I I keep on pointing out, I know it's a controversial view and it may be stirring a pot, but if you look at all these mass shootings and where all these kids are getting shot up and everything, you don't see it happening at Christian schools or Jewish schools or anything like that, where there's morals and principles taught alongside education as well. You know, it's to me, it's pretty clear. 
Building off of something me and you had talked about before we actually started recording today, the the early few commandments really are much deeper than we give them credit for. A lot of people look at the Ten Commandments and even somebody who's atheist can say, well, objectively, I can see that like, you know, six or seven of these, they they kind of line up with how I feel, so they're good. But those first three commandments really are important. And this first commandment that, well, really the first three commandments are centered around recognizing who and what is God. And to your point of when they remove God from schools, there is this assumption that people, they'll be naturally sort of agnostic till they come of age and then they can choose whatever they want. People are fairly well hardwired to look around them in the world and say something is transcendent. In other words, something is overarching and something is, is going to outlast everything around us. And when people took away the idea that God is the transcendent thing in reality, people started finding other things in life to treat as transcendent, such as the government. And the government is very unreliable about being transcendent. It's not beyond human fallibility. It's it's not beyond corruption. And a lot of these places where you're seeing these mass shootings happen, there's a lot of corruption in these people's lives, unmistakably. Yes. But I think yes. you're onto something because they don't actually have the proper thing in life treated as transcendent. And the commandment about there's only one God, and that's the Lord your God. In other words, there's only one thing in the universe that is going to be reliable as the transcendent source of morality. And you're making a mistake when you start saying the government is the new source of your morality. And it's a bad thing. Bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, To go along with that, you know, as I think what you're saying there is, and I don't, maybe I'm misconstruing it, but I I think I, I, and following with you, when you take God out of the situation, you're creating a vacuum space that people are going to have to fill with junk. Uh, And junk isn't necessarily always bad. Uh, It could be things that make you happy too that aren't destructive to your your, uh, well-being. But you are going to fill that vacuum space. And when you look at the situation of of all these, these mass shootings, typically it's someone that was bullied or ignored, right? And whereas in the past, when you look at Christians, we are supposed to, no matter what race or gender or sex or um, religious background or anything that you're coming from, you're supposed to treat each other as brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I found in that last Parkland shooting is Emma Gonzalez, which is one of the most outspoken students of that situation alongside David Hogg and everything, mm-hmm. said it was no surprise to every, anyone that this kid did what he did. Uh, don't stand here and or sit here and tell us that we shouldn't have ostracized him. You didn't know him. And she was basically saying, I, yeah, I bullied him or I ostracized him, but you didn't know him. I, I was able to ostracize him because he deserved it as, in, in essence. Well, that is a completely uh, different viewpoint than what a Christian should take. She should have nurtured that, um, that that whole scenario where you wouldn't have gotten this kid to this this type of level of just inner demons that took over and 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 with what he ended up doing then. So I, I found that really disturbing. Oh, absolutely. Peer rejection is one of the biggest risk factors for somebody who is still young and undergoing cognitive development to find themselves going the style of being a life course, any social 
actor as opposed to someone who's just an adolescent limited antisocial actor, um, to throw out a little bit of Terry Moffat's theory of antisocial development. But um, yeah, absolutely. Peer rejection is huge red flag. And again, in the church, there's this concept where Christ commands people to love one another. A lot of times we water that down just with the commandment to love, but it's actually love one another, um, which is quite different because love is not naturally reciprocated. You get a lot of people who they may want friends in school and their friends don't want to, or the people around them don't want to be friends with them and they reject them. Oh, look at that. Sorry about that. Oh, you're fine. (laughs) Hey, I've got a killer studio though. You know what? It actually surprises people. I'll let you in on a little secret here. Um, I don't know what's going on with it. Eh, it's fine. <laughs> um, this is it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of people that come on and co- and guest co-host with me and everything don't realize that um, it's it's just this part here, and it uh, there we go. Um, that it's you know it's in a shed basically. <laughs> And uh, when they come in, they're like, "My gosh, it looks so much bigger on camera and everything." You know, you don't really need that much of a space. I think you're you're you seem to be sitting in a small room yourself right there too, and it yes. it works out just fine, you know. Well, so and you go into a news studio, and it's crazy. Those, those yeah. cameras are almost right up on the news mm-hmm. desk, and it's a little thing. It's it's amazing. Well, it, so. it works so much better for audio too. Not having a massive oh, space, yeah. it's easier. Oh to, yeah, yeah. Uh, mine is actually a a office that's been converted into a studio. People, I don't remember who it was. Somebody came in here and described this as cord purgatory when we first started this, which was <laughs> hilarious. And it has stuck with it ever since. I can't, I can't even remember the situation. They came in and were like, there's cables and cameras everywhere and it's way smaller than I was expecting. Um, yeah. So it's hilarious. Well, uh, one, one, th- one last thing before you get off of education. A lot of uh, school districts right now are making the news because of um, teacher strikes. And I know one in Wisconsin just ended. And seeing that you have family members that are teachers, this is a hard subject to talk about. And I know it comes off as as, uh, abrasive and everything. But I, I think one thing that people need to keep in mind is really dig down deep into the numbers when you're talking about salaries for teachers and everything. It's a really tough thing to do. We were trying to do a merit-based system here and playing around with ideas because we were getting compared to other local districts that were much larger, had corporations in them, and they're paying their teachers much more. But we can't afford that based on our tax system out here in the country as opposed to the city right next to us. Um, That being said, in my area, and I won't say what area that is exactly, at one point in time when I was on the school board, they wanted to go on a teacher strike and, and ask for more money. When I dove down into the numbers on that, the median household income in our area, meaning both people bringing in an income, fell at about $56,000 a year. The average teacher salary, uh, single teacher salary, in our district was $66,000 a year. So they were getting paid $10,000 more on average than the uh, household in the area with two incomes coming in. And on top of that, we're asking for a tax increase on those people making less to pay for their salary. So it's it I, it's a system that we really need to figure out, I think, because I do believe that some teachers do deserve over 100000 a year. I think that there's phenomenal teachers out there. And I do believe that some of them need to be making less than $10,000 a year based on the type of education that they provide. But it's 
it's something that a lot of districts has, have been looking at and trying to figure out as of late. And it's just really hard because, you know, even my own theory on that and tying that to the median household income, when you look at something like Allentown near me and you're looking at an inner city where there's stabbings and, and stuff by kindergarten students, um, you know, the average, the average uh, or medium household income in that area is poverty level. So it's not worth it to pay a teacher poverty level and tie it to that. So there's yeah. all these just little nooks and crannies that you really have to investigate. Oh, again, it goes back to the due process. We yes, as a exactly. society, we Good need tie-in. to understand <laughs> that the due process is not just this foreign legal concept that is manifested somewhere in history and has somehow come down to us and now we have the criminal court system. We need to understand that as individuals, we need to, to go out and do a little investigation. And not just enough that finds some evidence. Again, people can find and rationalize evidence that's not necessarily complete, but people need to really dig deep into so many issues in our culture. And I think the personal virtue, again, I want to emphasize the personal virtue of the due process is one of the things which can help bring our culture back from the edge of chaos. If people will say we need to do a lot of digging and gather not just a little bit of evidence, but enough to really answer for a lot of variables, that will help us out. And that's a great example. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what with to go along with what you're talking about there with due process, we are really looking at a culture that has gone away from the classic saying of innocent until proven guilty oh, to guilty until proven innocent, which is completely backwards. And people yeah. trying to have to prove themselves innocent is an endless game because yeah. it, there's just no evidence for that if you're not guilty. Oh, certainly. So Yeah, it's, it's an impossible task in most cases. I mean, you get an accusation against you in this yeah. day and age, and it can ruin your life quickly, quickly, quickly. Well, and we're seeing that too. Yeah, we really are. For time purposes, we've got to wrap things up. Anthony had something I think he wanted to pitch in at the end. The um, I was going to say, you know, to build off of personal virtues as well, and the um, teacher income. Uh, yeah, I would say that a lot of people in our day and age, sadly, have lost the personal responsibility to be responsible for something that you're not that you didn't personally cause which i think you know is so funny but that's a personal responsibility thing you have to take personal responsibility for things that you don't always cause you know sometimes you see problems in the world and you know what you're the only one out there who sees it and you may be the only one who can fix it so you need to be the one who fixes it you know what i mean but um i feel like a lot of people need to start applying this to their job as well you know a lot of people think that you absolutely have to be incentivized in order to do an above and beyond amazing job you know and to really put your full effort into it and i'm not saying not to incentivize those people but if it's not happening there's no reason not to um give your best performance you know and that's something sadly that I've seen, and it's so weird because with a lot of the baby boomers, um, anytime I work with a baby boomer and a Gen X, mm-hmm. perfectly fine. You know, things go pretty well, <laughs> yes. and I'm really happy, honestly, to be working by their side. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then, you know, yes. if I work next to someone my age, honestly, it's irritating. <laughs> you know, almost every time. It is. So, um, what would you guys, what would you guys think about that? Well, I want to clarify. I don't like the idea of, of just abstractly saying whenever you see something, deal with it. Because so many people in a day and age, they obfuscate the difference between personal guilt and like some sort of social guilt. I'm really skeptical mm-hmm. of anything qualified by the word social because people say, oh, oh, there was bad things in the past. Therefore, your life must be ruined to deal with it. 
we don't buy that virtue at the expense of all others. Use the due process. Have some rationality. Look at the world around you. And if there's a problem, man up. Say, I'm going to deal with this. But yeah, that's the only thing I'm going to throw with it. <laughs> Couple that with some investigation and some some critical thinking. And I don't have anything more to add thing. to that because honestly, I think one of the biggest problems we have in culture today in our specific United States culture is a lack of personal responsibility. You don't yeah. see people owning their problems or yep. what uh, what was caused by what they did. And instead, it's always shifting blame onto someone else. Yep. And you never get a true apology. Apologies are always forced or shamed out of people because there's no personal responsibility anymore. Oh, yeah. And again, even looking at the gospel message, there is a personal transformation that, that brings people into the kingdom. And people just don't want that now. They want group agency, not personal agency. And that's a shame. Absolutely. Well, anyways, we're going to wrap this up. Thanks so much, Chris. And again, absolutely, Chris, remind us all the places that viewers can find you. Sure. If you search on the uh, on Facebook, you can search for the Generation Y Conservative. Hit follow and get notifications. Unfortunately, I don't know about the religious end of things, but the conservative end of things, if you don't hit get notifications, you are not going to see that stuff in your newsfeed. Um, on YouTube, uh, I have a lot of fun on YouTube with the podcast and everything. It's the HD uh, video and audio. Search for the Generation Y Conservative. I also do movie reviews. I'm going to be reviewing a movie right after this, as a matter of fact. Um, and then on Twitter, it's at Gen Y Conservative without the E on the end. And you can also find me on iTunes and uh, KLRN Internet Radio as well. So Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. I appreciate it, guys. God bless. God bless you.